Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot. Hi, I'm Drew. And I'm Derek. We're on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We like to connect leadership concepts to story context because we think it sticks to our brain better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. Now, enjoy our wonder tour of Iron Man and the life of Tony Stark. tour we're excited today we've got a great show uh we're really uh looking forward to this um today we're talking tony stark and uh drew um i love tony stark man he is awesome um i think one of the best things i love about tony stark is that in you know he's an inventor right and he is man he is unapologetic uh and is inventing and i love that and i love how it's celebrated in uh, Iron Man movies and uh, the Avengers. So, what's your uh, what's your favorite thing about Tony Stark, man? Oh wow! I you know I'm a sucker for the story, and you know second only to the redemption narrative, right? Why the redemption narrative is better than the the perfection narrative? It seems like a lot of the time, um, at least in our type of cinema that we watch. So, I love the redemption story. I think for me, the most interesting thing about tony here and, and we're just going to talk about iron man today the the original movie um but i think the most interesting thing to me is that this is the first real movie in the marvel cinematic universe in the marvel cinematic universe i mean we'll have to talk about that at length in the future but it opens a completely new territory for character development that really wasn't available because everything previously was like a trilogy or a saga but now we have this marvel cinematic universe where these characters can be you know, static within films, but dynamic over the course of all of these movies that they're going to be a part of. And so just to watch Tony Stark's character develop and just to kind of like cast the um, see the vision that's cast for him and see how he like fails, but eventually succeeds in, in you know, fulfilling the legacy that's left for him is so awesome. Yeah, that's great. Um, MCU, you know, it's kind of a strategy, isn't it? You know, overall. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about that in the future. Um, so let's talk about, you know, kind of the story in Iron Man and uh, kind of what's in there. And because there's so many good, like so many good things inside of that movie. Absolutely. So I'll do a flyover here for us. So I'm, I'm as always with the flyover, I'll take liberties in how I tell the story. Um, really, the story starts with Tony being taken. Um, he's taken by these terrorists in Afghanistan. He's out in this Humvee and he gets, you know, the Humvee gets destroyed and everybody dies and Tony gets taken. It's a targeted attack and he's then kept in this cave um, where they're trying to make him create super weapons for these terrorists. He's in there with this other scientist named Jensen who's also been captured and is kind of being used as like a go-between with Tony. 
maybe he was like their first plan or something. It's not really let on, but Tony uh, Jensen saves Tony after Tony has all the shrapnel in his chest from the, the rocket that explodes and almost kills him. And he saves him by putting the, you know, the Iron Man heart in him, essentially. Um, and they, or, well, I guess they work together to put the Iron Man heart in him, which is the arc reactor that Howard Stark, Tony's father, created in 1975. So they have this, um, they create this relationship between those two guys. And then, again, they're getting pressed to make weapons for these terrorists. And they end up pushing back, pushing back. And then eventually they're like, yeah, we'll do it. But they don't actually end up doing it, right? What do they create? They create that original super crude Iron Man suit. And I think the there's so much important stuff we'll come back to in this section. But that relationship between Jensen and Tony um, is, is a relationship unlike he's seen before in his life. And he really feels like he owes a lot to Jensen when Jensen eventually, you know, he's like, I'm going to make I'm going to create time for you. And he's going to go in and sacrifice himself so that Tony can escape um, in the Iron Man suit. And that leaves an imprint on Tony's character when that happens. And so he, Tony does end up escaping. It, they, they, the, when he tries to actually fly the suit, it kind of fails. It's like this big honk of junk, basically. That's like, it looks like a robot. You know, what we would imagine a robot looks like in like the 1950s or something. But I love does. how it flies apart, you know, I, yeah. it just blows them into a million pieces. Yeah, that's that's most of the prototypes I've ever made, too. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> escaping, though. He does yeah. end up escaping and roadie. Any prototype you can walk military. away from. <laughs> his friend in the military comes and saves him. He comes back. He comes. He's living in California, Southern California. He comes back, and at this point, he realizes that something has to change. Well, for two reasons, right? One, he has like this hard constraint on his heart, so he's going to have to develop a better arc reactor for his heart. He can't keep living on the kind of prototype that he built to keep himself running in the caves. And then two is while he was there, he sees these moments where, you know, these stark um, weapons are being used by the terrorists. And he's like, wow, they just have access to all of my weapons. Um, that's super unfortunate. And it's kind of the reality for leaders sometimes is you realize that initiatives or things that you've been pushing have had negative impacts on other people. And so he has that realization that all of his life's work, all of his father's life's work really is surmounting to a name that is synonymous with just weapons worldwide. It's not even the good guys necessarily. And so he realizes he has to make a change in his life. And that change, we really see it start to happen. He goes into the lab and he starts prototyping. He's trying to figure out what he's going to do. Um, he loves the Iron Man suit idea, though, um, after he and, and he sees this video footage of those same terrorists, you know, creating all of these refugees by just, just terrorizing people and destroying these towns. And and they're using, again, Stark technology. And so he's he's absolutely floored by this. And that's when he decides to take and create the Iron Man suit. Right. So he creates this this, you know, Mach 2 version of the Iron Man suit way more, <laughs> way higher quality than it was before. Um, A real and, jump there in the movie um, that I'd like to note. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. No, I was just saying it's a real jump from, uh, you know, from something so crude to something like well-refined. Um, yeah. 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 The biggest suspension of disbelief. 
in this movie is Jarvis, right? It's like, you're just like, oh my gosh, how does he have this AI that's just capable of doing all this stuff? I mean, imagine if you had an AI that was just, you know, that was just augmented you to the capability that you're like able to rip apart things and it just does all the fine engineering work for you of figuring out what what exact materials to use and what the specs are going to be on the parts and how they fit together and stuff. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that's that's how he, he refined his prototype so fast. They made it believable in that way. That's good. Yeah. Well, and, and they do. They, they continue to establish who Jarvis is with the future movies. So it's not just left out there. It's kind of a loose end. But yeah, to continue. So he does. He goes on this test drive with it. He flies a little bit too close to the moon and he freezes um, in his suit. He like falls back down to, to Earth, but he's able to save himself. We'll get back to that later um, as that shows up later in the movie as well. Um, he then goes out to... He goes out to finally test drive it in Afghanistan, where he wants to go and kind of save the people from the weapons that he's created. Um, I guess I've missed a point here, <laughs> haven't I? Where he, uh, we, they have like the benefit, the fireman benefit um, that Stark is putting on kind of a yearly thing he does that he normally wouldn't show up to, never expected to show up to. And he does show up to it this time. And he starts kind of like confronting Obi about those weapons. And he's like, hey. Like, what's going on with these weapons? Why do these people have these weapons? Why am I seeing our name on the news connected to terrorists? And Obi doesn't give him a, a clear response. And he's like, I was naive before, Tony says. And so you, you see that there's like a total change in his character from his time in Afghanistan in those caves. And he's no longer the kid that just grew up, you know, uber rich, that uber smart and can get away with anything. He's realizing that, like, what he does has implications on the world and he has to... You know, he, he has a, a responsibility as a leader to do something about it. So then he goes out and he, he goes and fights in Afghanistan. He kind of just like messes people up. It's awesome. Right. <laughs> he saves he saves the the father and the kid. Um, really a good heartfelt story there. Um, then he comes back and he, we're still dealing with this. Um, this whole Iron Man narrative of, you know, the news is like, who is Iron Man? What is this thing? You know, the, the military is trying to figure out what he's doing um, at this point. And now we're starting to realize, I mean, the viewer has realized, but Tony is now, you know, like fully realizing that Obi, his father's business partner, um, is, is the bad guy here. And he um, we get that scene when he goes and meets with a terrorist specifically, and they've tried to rebuild this Iron Man suit very crudely. Um, and so the, the, the terrorists kind of show it to him. And then Obi had Obi's just ruthless at this point. Right. So he just like takes out the terrorists, kills them all. Um, and takes the suit back and he's going to, of course, try and try and make the suit for himself here. So this all kind of comes to a head just to kind of close the story. This all kind of comes to a head with Obi in this, you know, bigger, bulkier Iron Man suit. But it's not nearly as refined as Tony's is because, of course, he doesn't have Tony's technology. Obi steals the uh, the arc reactor from Tony. But Tony goes back and uses the one that Pops gave him as a gift, the original one to save his life. Um, they end up going and fighting him um, on top of the the building with the original, arc, you know, big arc reactor from 1975 in it. And, you know, Potts and Stark end up finally defeating uh, Obi here. But I do want to take note that they they once again fly all the way up towards the moon. And, you know, Tony's using what he learned from that original test that he did uh, of the suit that he's like, man, he's not going to have made changes to uh, to face the cold in his armor. And so he, once again, they fly very high. And this time, Tony's ready, and he does it for a reason. 
it doesn't fully end uh, with him saving the day there. And he really needs, again, even Iron Man needs needs help. And so he needs pots to help him to set off the reactor um, to eventually destroy Obi and everything he was working for. And then it all ends with, uh, you know, the fun. Of course, he wins. It's Iron Man, the original movie. There's going to be everything that comes afterwards. But it ends with this really fun press scene where Agent Coulson and stuff are like, please, like, just read the, from the script. This is, you know, you're just going to go out there and you're going to tell people that you you, don't, you had nothing to do with this. Here's my alibi. And, of course, we all love when he comes out and he's like, you know what? I'm Iron Man. <laughs> he's like the one superhero that, he, you know, he's he is prideful. He does have that background and that that personality and he's just like i'm iron man and then kind of the movie ends and you're like man i really want iron man 2 now <laughs> that's exactly how i felt when i saw it yeah uh well that's that was a good uh, summary of what happened in the story there drew thank you um so uh let's let's rewind now because that's what we do here right and because uh, when we're wondering about you know uh, kind of what had happened and trying to reflect on it. Um, we do that. So let's go back to the moment that, um, he had that first test, uh, the first meaningful test out of Malibu. And, uh, let's talk through that. Yeah. So that when he tests his prototype of the suit, right? So the original test, um, in the, the caves of Afghanistan is like a forced test. And that's another thing we can talk about, but this is like a voluntary test, right? Like the suit is not quite working perfectly inside of his lab yet. He's willing to take the suit for a test drive. Remember he's talking to Jarvis and he's like, how long is it going to take? And, and that's this funny. This happens throughout the, the Marvel C cinematic universe, right? He keeps every time there's a new version of the suit, he's always just like itching to get into it and try it immediately. And that's what he does, right? As soon as it's ready, he's like, all right, you know, Jarvis is like five hours and he's like, all right, like, let's do it. <laughs> I mean, he, as soon as it's done, he's test driving it. Yeah. I, and I think that's a really great trait to have as a leader. Uh, if you're, if you're thinking about, you know, when you're making, uh, inventing something, let's say you're inventing something, you know, and you, you've, it's never been done before. And people think it's really strange and weird and odd. Um, cause they're like, I, I've never seen this combination of these things before. Right. But um, if you get those basic elements, and so I'd like to talk through, you know, pre his test, right? How first he checked some of the most critical pieces, right? So he went and obviously he knew he had power. Um, I do not want to debate the theoretical uh, impro impossibility of routing all this power around the suit. That's impossible. <laughs> so just you know all the small wires and all this stuff it, it's just you know it would blow it makes any electrical engineering uh person like just laugh but anyway let's let's skip that part and just think about the the flight controls he started kind of with the flight controls then he started with or then he went with the uh repulsors um that he kind of uh made out of flight controls essentially so he he doubled up so he found out those critical functions right off the bat and those are very if you think about it, really super critical functions that he outlined at the beginning. And so he knew once he had that, that most of it, he just had to uh, make kind of articulation of the robotics of the suit, you know, that kind of stuff. And maybe, you know, whatever, because he has gone to MIT, yada, yada, yada. Uh, you know, um, he knew how to do the rest of that stuff fairly easily, right? But the really new stuff, you could tell he made a special moment to okay, how do I build a boot, you know, for this thing? How do I make sure that this thing can fly? 
And then how do I make sure that I can actually do additional control with the with the hands and stuff? So I thought that was really interesting about the first test and and kind of building something that you've never built before. Because that first one compared to the second one, uh, there's some pretty big differences, you know, and how like he had flamethrowers on the hands with the first one, right? So he obviously was like, hmm, I don't think flamethrowers are really, you know, long-term. I don't think flamethrower has a lot of uh, run room, right? You got to carry around fuel, all this other stuff, right? So there, there's some things from your first prototype that you may drop uh, when you go to the second prototype. Now, notice that the flying was constant, right? He's like, flying has to be a thing. Now, I don't know why that, you know, what what drove him to do that, et cetera, but I think uh, having the freedom to be able to be in a particular location at a particular time, maybe that's got something to do with it. Or maybe it's about, you know, the show of it all. Who knows, right? But uh, flying definitely made it through from prototype one to prototype two. Um, so I, I think that's kind of interesting. Priority, right? And that's, <laughs> as a leader, um, whether it's your prototype or something that's happening within your, you know, your organization, very loosely using the word organization, it might be your family. Um, but within your organization, right, you have to help to develop prototypes. Um, you have to help to define prototypes, too, because it's natural human tendency, at least it seems to me in Western culture, to be more of a perfectionist. We kind of err more towards that side of things versus um, the other side where you're, you're willing to take risks and you're willing to, to fail. Right. We've been we have this kind of self-reinforcing nature, whether it's through social media, everything else that like, you know, if you fail once, it's going to your name's going to be stuck to that failure. So Tony clearly isn't afraid of that, but he also he knows how to break that. You, you gave like two or three specific things, features that he wanted to have in that second prototype. And he knows how to break it down and be like, I don't care about the weapons, all this other stuff that will is all secondary to the fact that I can fly and that the materials of the suit are strong. That seems to me what he focuses on, right? And he tests that immediately. He tries to fly as high as he can and sees how the materials are going to handle the atmosphere. And that, you know, he talks about, doesn't he say like how high does a Blackhawk soar or something like that? And he's he's talking exactly about, you know, how high can military craft fly? You know, the highest military craft, how high does it fly? It's like, I want to be able to fly. Uh, yeah. SR-71, yeah. yeah SR-71. And, yeah, well, I was just thinking here, you know, I mean, one of the things that's cool is that he also borrowed ideas from things he already had, you know? That's smart, you know. Um, so, you know, that's a good that's a good thing to do. But you know, you're you're kind of talking about the uh, peaking out here, you know, going to the um, testing the limits. So go back to that for a second. I want to know more about what you're thinking. Yeah. So testing your limits, I think it's really important that you figure those out um, as fast as you can. It's not necessarily you know early on is better, but as fast as you can, you want to figure out what the limits are. And you have to be creative in order to do that, in my experience. So a lot of times what that looks like is figuring out how to test something without building the whole thing, right? We're not Tony Stark, so we're not all these these MIT robotics engineers that can just kind of like, you know, and, and that have an AI that works with us that can fill in all the gaps in how we're doing things, right? We need to figure out a fast way to test things out to see if they're going to work. And I think, Derek... Uh, I might point at you for an example where I think you do that well with your kids. And that's like the honestly the smallest example that you can break it down to. It's so much more simple than business or um, like operations where you help them to break down their ideas into something, you know, really small that's testable. Because for a kid, time range of a month is a long time. 
So if it's going to take them a month to do something like, you know, it, it's not that you don't want them to do that because that builds good character and stuff. But you need to break things down into really small pieces and help them to just dissect it to like, all right, we're going to get one feature done. You know, I know you want to do all this stuff, but let's just focus on one of those things. And that's what it means to, to lead well is to help your team to develop their skills, help them to keep a lot of things constant while maybe one thing changes. Yeah, I mean, I think the funny thing is, is that <clears throat> I tend to take the same approach with adults as I do with kids. <laughs> um, I try to like my stage one is kind of, OK, figure out where this person's at. Right. Um, what are they comfortable with? What can they and then I think this is a critical one. What can they see themselves doing? Right. So in the case of Tony Stark, he can see himself doing anything. So it's not really that hard for him to like go in and do X, Y, Z. Um, but you know, your garden variety collaborator, I think you've got to go through a sizing up process, uh, on your side and you don't need to tell them this, um, because you don't want to make them uncomfortable, right? The first thing is you want to make them feel comfortable in the role of prototyper, right? Um, we don't talk a lot about the prototyper role, but, um, you know, and so then once they realize, okay, like, and, and then the other thing is, the next thing is you got to like lay out the tools, right? So these are the tools that you are able to use. <clears throat> and I think if you are thinking wisely about enabling someone to prototype, you want to give them some rich uh, tools, but make sure that it's a small set of tools, right? Mm -hmm. um, nothing overwhelming. And so when you can work within the richness of a few tools, you start to really gain confidence because um, it's easy to, uh, when you have a rich tool, I think it's really easy to learn the basic levels of that tool very easily. And then you can continue to ratchet up your experience. Um, you know, uh, a good example of this uh, would, I, I think Python is, is, is a language like that. You know, I'm not gonna get into the specifics of that, but, <clears throat> it's just really easy to get started in something, uh, a language like that, for example, and then you can kind of go from there. Um, but yeah, you don't need I think those are the things I would think about. Works, right? you, and, and when you get, yeah. I've seen you do this before, I don't want to dive too deep into the Python rabbit hole, right? But for those who right. aren't totally aware, right, Python is kind of a, a Swiss Army knife coding language that you can use to do just about anything. And it's good at just about anything. It might not be the best in the business, but it's really good at it. And so you can get started there. And so I've seen you encourage a lot of people to get started in Python. And you normally like you can have, there's all these libraries of all these building blocks of code you can use, but you usually are like, hey, get started with just like two. <laughs> like don't, don't use a ton of stuff. Don't overly confuse yourself. Just figure out how to do it with like the main functions that are already within Python. And then once you have those mastered and you've got a prototype working, then you can expand out into all these other libraries that will help you do it so much more eloquently. Yeah, and I, I wanna jump in there too and say that um, there are other tools like that, uh, Omni tools, I would say that, that you know, for example, I, before I even did anything with saws and, and carpentry and stuff like that, Dremel tools. People can do the most fantastical things with Dremel tools I've never seen before. What's so you got into me. It's just saying it, it's the thing that just grinds on wood. It just you just run it around and you grind on wood. You can cut holes with it. You can cut patterns. Um, you know, my point is, is like, you know, you give somebody a tool like that to start out. And what that does is it allows you to make an end to end prototype. When you get an end to end prototype, you have done one iteration, right? 
you have actually made something and then you can go test it. Does it even work? 3D printing is great for this too, right? Um, where you can just make something rough and I've messed up stuff and I've been like, whoa, this is definitely not the shape I thought it was going to be. Uh, or I had some kind of weird printing thing going on. Uh, but go to each you know situation here and you can see at the very basis, you want to get end to end on your loop. If you can't make it around the whole loop to get one iteration done, um, you've got to go back and you may have to pull something out of the scope from what you're trying to do. Just reduce the scope a little bit. Like Tony, go back to make the flight boots. Don't leave the flight boot stage until you get the flight boot done, right? Um, I think that's very key when you're talking about prototyping and having a successful test because test testing should build your faith, right? It should make you believe in your abilities more. It should make you believe in your idea more. That doesn't mean that you don't have the vision out there. Of course, you've got to set the vision and you can see the vision slightly change over time as you create more prototypes and you start to realize where this thing's going to end up. So visions are kind of blurry to start, right? And then as you go, like I said, I'm kind of going to say the same thing again in a little bit different way. As you go, the vision will start to sharpen, right? And I think that's a, a, an extremely effective way to kind of think about how vision works and how leaders use vision. Um, <clears throat> they don't have it all figured out right out the gate. That's okay. They thought that far ahead. Now they don't they don't get that credit for that many times. But as the prototypes roll through, uh, people start to realize, crap, this is going to work, right? And you're going to have that curve. I think you mentioned Simon Sinek in a previous episode, and I think that was that's good. Um, you know, there's like this curve of people that adopt or whatever. And so there's the people at the beginning of the curve. They really, really get it quickly. And then there's like some more people and some more people. And that's kind of how the prototyping is going to work for you, you know, as you go. So anyway. Wow, you've really uh, you've nailed it here. I can tell you have <laughs> a lot of experience in the prototyping world, especially with technology. But I want to talk to our users um, or our, our community members who aren't necessarily in technological innovation. For them, what does prototyping look like, maybe in the idea space, in the life space? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you know, you think about what kind of change you want to make in your life, right? So uh, every every book I've ever run across, you know, you have to imagine what your future state is. So if it's just you as a person, you have to think about what kind of person you want to become and be able to picture that person that you want to become. You know, you want to become a more and I'm not I'm not a motivational coach, so. <laughs> I just don't do that. That's not what I, it's not what I do. Right. Um, so I'm just talking as a guy out here, right. Just like Drew is, but, um, you know, when you think about, uh, what kind of leader you want to become, do you want to become a more uh, emotionally in touch leader? Right. Or do you want to become a, a more bold leader? You got to go consume sources of bold. You got to go consume sources of emotionally in touch. It doesn't mean that you have to become that person. That's a misnomer itself. I think that you have to go out and somehow become someone's doppelganger or something and be like, well, I'm the copy of you. No, don't, don't become a copy of somebody else. That's, that is not what we, you know, you want to wonder, right? Because you want to uh, become the best you, right? So think about how you can, uh, you know, draw inspiration from multiple sources 
and draw in, uh, you know, these, these, uh, different aspects of different leaders out there that you have read about concepts you've, you know, and you, you kind of feel that out along the way. And how do you do that? You iterate you, my friend are also a prototype, right? And you are also constantly being renewed and changed every iteration that you go through. Um, it's proven by science, neuroplasticity. Uh, you know, so a lot of people forget that they forget that they are, you know, plastic. And, uh, so just keep that in mind. You know, when you do a prototype, it changes you too. It changed Tony, didn't it, Drew? Absolutely. That was killer. Better than I could have ever expected. <laughs> You're going to come back with that question. I love it. Uh, the only thing I even have to add to it is just keeping things to, you know, keep your changes to one or two, just like Tony does, right? Just bringing that back full circle. If you're trying to change yourself or if you're trying to change, you know, habits of your, your organization, your family, whatever it is, keep those changes to one or two things at a time. And getting any more than that is out of hand. I think there's plenty of studies that show that leadership books you can read. One that comes to mind is Jim Lair's The Power of Full Engagement, where he talks about exactly goes through these case studies of people's lives and changes in their lives. And, you know, one thing that's common through all of the people who've successfully, you know, done drastic changes in their life has been that they they focused on maximum two things at once that they were trying to change. So I think when you prototype it out, you know, keep the keep it to like one variable that's changing. Yeah, I think that's really a, a really good way to say it, Drew, because, um, you know, and I, I think that kind of takes us to our mentors uh, here, because, you know, if you think about Obi, right, Obadiah, whatever you want to say, you know, you want to bring his name either way, um, you know, Obi, the endearing term that Tony uses, uh, and then Obadiah is kind of how Pepper Potts kind of addresses him. I think there's a lot of weight in the two ways to address um, and shows the distance between Pepper and Obadiah, right? She knows what he's up to and she's, she's a helper, right? So she's, and she has claimed Tony as her own, you know, and that, that's such a cool relationship. We'll have to go back to that sometime and just kind of pull that one apart. Um, Cause I think it's really powerful to have a relationship like that in your life. But um, even when you don't deserve it, <laughs> yeah. um, but Obadiah is somebody who tries to do too many things at once. And uh, Drew, what, in your opinion, uh, maybe there's some, you know, other narrative that you can bring in that you can kind of, you know, pull that apart with and kind of better, you know, talk about Obadiah's. What, where did he fail? What, what did he do wrong? Yeah, absolutely. And you see, uh, I liked how you talked about the names, right? Names mean something. Names are really impactful. And so when you notice somebody using different names, then you, you can see that there's like a different way that they're a different perspective that they're seeing things through. They have a different lens. Um, Obi is really all that's left of Howard Stark for Tony other than, you know, plastic and metal, right? he's he's left with these drawings and these and these you know inventions and stuff but his father didn't leave him with a lot of feelings um his father didn't you know all he left him with is like money and that seems to be it at least at the beginning to tony to younger tony that's all he thinks that howard stark left him with and so obi is kind of like the one the the piece in between obi was the one who worked with howard for so long and you know, we don't get the full story in the movies of what happens to Obi that you assume at some point he was, you know, he was on the right path and he goes off that path in a, you know, after Howard dies, probably in an attempt to gain power. Right. He's I mean, 
they just don't flush him out too much in this movie. He's your typical like superhero villain, right? He's he's after power, he's after money, he's completely ruthless, or at least by this point when we see him, he's completely ruthless to the extent where you know he's just taken out everybody. He doesn't care about Tony, he doesn't care about Pepper, he doesn't care about the terrorists he's working with, he doesn't care about anybody. Um, and I think what happens to him, right, is he he just kind of loses his mind, and we see that in the allegory to the Icarus myth, right? So everybody here is probably familiar with the Icarus myth, if that name just, you know, is triggering your brain, but not telling you what it is, right? Icarus had wings, but he flew too close to the sun, right? He's this Greek mythological character. And um, John Favreau, the director of Iron Man, plays to that, right? So he shows Tony flying too close to the sun or the moon, whatever you want to call it, and falling back down. Um, and, and that's kind of the game that Tony's going to has been playing his whole life and will continue to play throughout the rest of the the all these phases of movies. Is he going to fly too close to the sun? He's the smartest Avenger. He's the wealthiest Avenger. Right. He, he has all this power and influence. But is he going to fly too close to the sun? We see it play out again in like Captain America Civil War. Right. Is Tony's pride going to undo him? And it's I I. Honestly, we only have so many movies to see, so I like to take what's more in the movies versus what's not. So I think that a lot of what impacts him is the juxtaposition of of Jensen versus Obi. Obi flies too close to the sun, right? We see it. We literally see him fly too close to the sun. He he freezes his Iron Man suit as he's flying all the way up at the end in that final battle. Um, he's so prideful that he just doesn't let anything stop him from trying to achieve his his gains he's kind of become broken in the head to that extent but jensen goes the opposite path right jensen goes the path of sacrifice jensen shows tony that that the icarus you know you don't have to be icarus basically you can atone for all these things that you've done for all these things that your family has done for the weapons that have appeared around the world you know you can do that and he shows him the way to do that through sacrifice, right? He he sacrifices his own life, and it has a profound impact on Tony Stark throughout the rest of the movies. And again, spoilers for some of these other movies, right? But he is always willing to sacrifice himself. He's always the one, even though he's got pots, he's got, he eventually has like a family and stuff. He's always willing to sacrifice himself. And if you just follow the movie lines, right, you can draw it back to that interaction in the cave with Jensen, where he saw and experienced the power of sacrifice. And again, I don't want to say that for every leader, that's what you're what you're called to do. But, you know, sacrifices are different. We've talked about this before, but I think that's some of the power here is the juxtaposition of this. Like he only has a really short term mentor in Jensen, who's kind of trying to save his life and stuff. But that with Obi. Yeah. So when you talk about Obi. You know, his his whole thing, like he. I think his pride outstripped his capability. Um, and so if you think about what, how did he become more of the Icarus narrative, right? Or the allegory, um, you know, you know, really it's because his pride was, was way bigger in his mind than what he was capable of. And so um, because he, he basically put himself in a bad moment. He put himself in a bad uh position through that pride that when that pride was full you know full growth full you know fully born right uh it took him down because reality caught up with him right he he had some power in his hands that he had just gotten a hold of you know i.e his his iron man suit 
And he was like, I can do everything, you know, and I'm going to, you know, you think about what pride does pride inflates, right? So if you think about the comparison of Tony's minimalist suit, right. Versus, you know, what do I, just what do I need? And then pride says, no, 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 I need, and there's a little bit of greed. I think there's greed and the greed is reflected in how fat that suit got, right? Well, I'm going to beef up this. I'm going to give this more weight. You know, I'm going to make sure I don't lose. But isn't that, what I think is interesting is, isn't that fear ultimately undermining all that, right? And that's how you, that's how you end up with, with, you know, emotions like pride and, and I guess greed's more of a choice, but it's a little bit of a feeling, right? Um, you, you get those from this underlying, you know, concept of fear, uh, you know, kind of driving those two things. And his suit was just bloated, man. Um, it was not a good prototype. I, I would be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is, this kind of violates the concept of what the suit is supposed to be about. You're not, you're not agile. You're not fast moving, right? Um, now let's contrast that with Jensen, though. You go back to Jensen. You think about pride versus capability, and you see more unity in Jensen's execution of pride versus capability. His pride was in others, which I think is fantastic, right? He loved his family. I get to be with my family now, Stark. I want this, right? So I want this hero's ending. You know, I want to be with my family. And then his abilities were basically to speak, to run around and shoot a gun, right? Um, to create a distraction. He knew what the reasonable things. Now think about it. If he were to like, I'm going to jump in this suit and I'm going to take off. Can you imagine how much of a spectacular failure that would be? And he knows that. And that's why it was never tried because, um, you know, he knows that he would have never been able to wield the suit like Tony. You, when you wield a prototype, just for a second, you know, when you wield, indulge me here, uh, you know, you've got to have a certain base level of understanding of the, the flaws in what you're wielding, right? And even Obi didn't understand that. His pride totally blew that out. He had no idea. Uh, the flaws, uh, the potential failure points of a prototype because he didn't bother to build it. And I think that's really important here. When you build a prototype, you have got, you, you, you gain uh, just uh, immeasurable amounts of experience with that prototype. And you know that thing inside and out. Other people look at it and they're like, you know, whatever. But so anyway, I think that's what pride, pride makes you blind. You know, that's what it, it's what's really interesting. It totally does. Right. I mean, just even from a prototype perspective, think about Iron Man 2 and Ivan, right? Ivan's Iron Man, quote unquote, Iron Man suits are all tailored, right? He is more of an inventor. He's more thoughtful with this. He's driven by revenge, not pride. But he has that same, you know, he actually thinks about his prototype. So, again, not, you know, whatever, all the failings of Ivan, but. Ivan in Iron Man 2, actually, he creates a suit for himself that that helps him and he does test it and he has experience with it. And so I think you can just see the, the failings in the prototype and you can kind of pull the first two topics that we've talked about together, the moment and the mentor there. But that leaves us. Right. So I, I do want one to. More, talk about, I want to jump one more thing on that. I think that's great that you mentioned Ivan just for a second, because I think it's really cool to, to show how, you know, pride here in this case uh, gives you kind of more of a diffuse, uh, like 
blind perspective, but then revenge gives you this laser focus. Um, again, not to say that we're ever propagating, you know, any kind of, uh, you know, revenge type thinking, but think, you know, there's, there's power in being focused on what you're supposed to do. So, um, anyway, and you get better prototypes. The, look <laughs> at this prototype was actually really good. I was really impressed by it. Well, okay, go ahead. Totally. And <laughs> Ivan is, and, and, and Ivan is so much more of a fleshed out believable villain than Obi is right. Obi just plays to these normal tropes of father's best friend didn't inherit the company, you know, feels underappreciated. Eventually that all digs at him at his personal relationships. He starts to see good as bad and bad as good. Everything's flipped upside down and he becomes the, your prototypical villain. But Ivan is different, right? And so I know we might get to that in another episode, but I do want to be able to kind of contrast that because I do think that's really important. And you actually do feel some level of empathy for Ivan when all of this is happening because you do see how Ivan went down that that bad whole thoughts and ended up where he's at. Now, I think part of this is, and you know, one area where both of these villains fail is, and leading by example, really. That's so as we get into the moral. I think the moral for me here is about, you know, a chance for atonement and it's about leading by example. Um, Tony in the caves, he this is his big internally. This is his big change moment. This is the the moment in the series. Now, there's one other moment in the series we'll talk about on a future episode, probably. But this is the moment in the entire series where he has the biggest change in his life happen. Right. And of course he does. This is his crucible. This is his. Um, this is his thing that he has to bear that he goes through and that truly changes him inside. His outside still has a pretty calloused exterior, right? Because that's generally how we, we humans are on the outside. You build up this calloused exterior and you even when the inside change starts to happen in the heart, everything takes a long time to actually reflect on the outside. And we only just see like glimpses of it in this movie. But I think the main change happens to Tony when he realizes that the impact that he has had and his family has had on the world has not been positive the way he had imagined it had been. And then he realizes, hey, I actually have, I'm put in a place where I have an opportunity to atone for the mistakes that I've made. And I have to start leading by example. I have to start being the man that people, you know, that people look at me to be. They expect me to be good. They expect me to be benevolent. They expect me to take care of people. I can't continue to be you, this guy who's kind of, all over the place. And and again, he's still going to fail because we all do. But and we see that in Iron Man 2, right? His fight with Rhodey. He, he absolutely fails. He gets smashed at this party and he ends up fighting in the Iron Man suit in front of the guests with Rhodey. So he's going to fail again because he's, he's still growing and he's still learning. But I think that change happens where he realizes like, no, I want to be a hero. And if I'm going to be a hero every thing that I do is going to be looked at. We see it, you know, the example said with kids where kids see more in what you do than what you say. And that's exactly how the general populace is going to view somebody like Iron Man or any leader, really, anybody that you're influencing, anybody that's around you that looks at you, they're going to see more by what you do than what you say. So you have to be careful to be the type of person, to have the type of character that you want to have. And I mean, how do you get there? We just talked about that by prototyping. That's exactly, you know, Tony's prototyping his personality and his character in the same way that he's prototyping his suit. Yeah, and I, <clears throat> one of the, th the things that I absolutely love about Tony is that he's authentic. Um, and, but to play off of what you just said, you know, what are you what are you doing what are you saying people think sometimes i'm not saying this is a total 
you know, truism every day of our lives. But, um, you know, they think that when, when you're trying to be like, I don't know, leaders get into tiptoeing. I'll say it like that. Right. They get onto the eggshell walking and, um, I think that makes them smaller leaders. They try to please everybody. It, there's there's a way to not be offensive to everyone or anyone and yet be authentic. And um, so you've got to be your authentic self all the time. And I mean, obviously, I'm going to tell you that um, because being an Enneagram type four, if you look that one up, uh, you want to be authentic, right? You want it's like it's like a it's not negotiable. Um, you start to feel kind of sick <laughs> to be honest, if I, if I really share that, but, um, because you're just like, everything feels backwards right now when you're not being authentic. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> but it doesn't mean that you have to be like, well, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. No, that's not, but, but, you know, instead Tony kind of does that in Iron Man too, right? You know, when he's in front of Congress, I think it's hilarious, uh, the way he handles it, but, uh, it's not something that I would sit there and say, yeah, he was being authentic, but that's not what I would recommend. Right. If he really wants to do the atonement, if he wants to lead by example, um, you know, he's got to think about, uh, you know, fighting for those that, and he does, right. He fights for those that can't speak. He fights for those that can't fight for themselves. And I think that's when we find Iron Man at his finest moments. Um, even when there's superheroes that can't fight for themselves, Right. Uh, he's fighting for them. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's really when we see Tony at his very, very best and any leader at their very, very best when they have, they just happen to have the right skills uh, that they may have even collected along the way. <clears throat> you know, a leader may lead, might may acquire a skill just to accomplish the vision, just to uh, help people out. Right. Um, just because he wants to lead by example, he's like, I'm not, I'm done looking for the resource. I'm going to become the resource. Right. Um, and I think that that is really cool. <clears throat> That's when you, you, you start to realize like, you know, I mean, it comes full circle, right? I can do this, right? When you go back to the prototyping thing and you go and you circle back and you realize this, uh, this cycle of, uh, iteration, um, you have those moments where you, you know, you can do this and, and, and that's when you, you know, you become the resource. You just, you make that decision, right, Drew? Absolutely. I think I want to, as we wrap this up, just kind of bring it full circle. And not every narrative that we look at comes full circle like this, but this one really does, right? So at the end, you actually have this nice, clean application, or as clean as it can be, um, where, you know, if you want to be, the hero and again not we don't want to create a hero complex with people that's again not the goal here and that's why we're not going to talk about heroes every single week but we do all love the hero narrative if you want to be the benevolent leader if you want to be the pragmatic leader how do you do that you do it by prototyping you do it by prototyping within yourself within your team within your projects that's one way and that's a way that we see tony stark innovate better than anybody else literally in the world right he innovates better because he's better at prototyping yeah sure he's really smart but that's something that you're not going to be able to replicate necessarily i certainly can't replicate that so if you figure out a way but 
he does it by prototyping. That's what we're trying to pull out of this. And why does he do it? He does it because he wants to be the leader that people think he he should be. He wants to be the person who does look out for the people who who don't have the power to protect themselves, right? He sees this responsibility that he's been given with the name Stark um, and with the role that he's been thrust into. And he says, I'm going to do more with this. I have to do more. You see this over and over again throughout the series. He feels like, you know, and, and again, We'll talk about this another time. He feels like he's not enough and that he should be more for everything that he has. That kind of chip is not necessarily to say it's a that's a good chip to have on your shoulder, but it is a chip to have on your shoulder. And it's something that you can lean into to develop. And, and, and so you have to balance that out. That's what wisdom looks like is balancing out, you know, how much you push yourself versus how much you reflect and rest and, and um lead into your mental and emotional energies and build fill up those tanks and stuff like that but tony really finds his sense of purpose in helping others where he's kind of been aimless his entire life and he continues he doesn't know where that journey is going to lead him but he found out a process by which he can find the end or you know at least he can keep he can keep following the light and he does that by making these rapid prototypes yeah he moves from purely having his whole entire leadership narrative be about looking good to doing good. And I think that pretty much sums up uh, today's episode. Um, it's just, <clears throat> you know, it's not all about looking good. It's it's about doing doing good. And I know it sounds like poor English, but think about it. You're doing good and you're also doing well. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Anything else to add there, Drew? No, that's it. Let's take this one down. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us on Wonder Tour today. We appreciate it, and we will see you next time.